Uh, well, this morning, uh, we are continuing in our uh, series through some of the parables of Jesus. And a parable is, uh, as we explained a couple weeks ago, is a very short, simple story with a spiritual point. Uh, it's different than like an allegory, which is a densely layered story with makes lots of points, lots of parallels. A uh, parable is much more simple in its payload. It's really just trying to deliver and hammer home one main idea or possibly two. And it's different from like a fairy tale in that whereas a fairy tale might invoke some fantastical elements, there might be magic or uh, magical happenings, talking animals, that kind of thing, uh, a parable is usually drawn from real life scenarios. And that's really what Jesus um, was a major hallmark of his teaching during the days of his earthly ministry. Now, this morning, we come to a parable that uh, is very difficult uh, to understand. R.C. Sproul said about this passage that it is universally considered by biblical scholars to be the most difficult of Jesus' parables to understand. William Barclay, in his commentary, said, This is the most puzzling parable that Jesus ever spoke. James Montgomery Boyce begins his commentary on this passage by stating flatly, This parable has been a problem for many readers. I read that, and then I said to myself out loud in my office, And for preachers. <laughs> and John MacArthur says that this is one of the most astonishing and enigmatic of all Jesus' parables. So it is pure hubris that brings me to this text this morning. If that's what those giants of the faith had to say about this text, then what business does Josh Tate have taking a stab at it? Well, we'll see. Let's go ahead and read it first. This is Luke chapter 16, verses 1 through 13. It's the parable of the dishonest manager. Again, this is Luke 16, verses 1 through 13. He also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, what shall I do? Since my master is taking the management away from me, I'm not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. I've decided what to do, so that when I'm removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, take your bill, sit down quickly, and write fifty. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Then he goes on, one who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, 
Who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Now, of course, one reason why this parable has been so confusing to so many is because it seems at first blush to commend dishonest dealings. It's a bit like if Jesus in his parable told a story about a certain drug dealer and his enforcer. (laughs) And the enforcer was found to be tasting the product. So the drug dealer called him in and said, what are you doing? I'm going to have you whacked. But first, bring me a record of everybody on the street who owes me money. (laughs) So he goes out and he finds all those records and he goes to them and says, here, quick, let's settle your drug debt. That's not that far off from the story Jesus told. A little far off, but not that far off. Basically, he's talking here about a co-conspiracy between rascals. And from this very bad example, he draws a good lesson. A couple of questions follow that immediately, which is, what is the lesson? Which is confused a bit by verse 9, which has been a problem for a lot of people, where Jesus says, and I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. That's a tough verse. What does that mean? But it's also problematic because why would Jesus use this example? Couldn't he have made whatever point he's making using figures that were less problematic, whose lifestyle were less obviously sinful? What do we make of this parable? Well, let me begin by stating clearly what I think the main lesson of this parable is. And then with that in mind, we can explore the why and the wherefore behind why Jesus makes this point in this way. It seems to me that the main point of this parable is very similar to that famous quote, you may have heard it before, that was offered by the missionary Jim Elliott. He's the missionary who was famously martyred trying to reach the Huarani people of Ecuador with the gospel. Jim Elliott once said, "'He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep,' to gain what he cannot lose. That's a true statement, and I think that that is close to the main idea behind the telling of this parable. The parable challenges us with the truth that our worldly goods, incidentally in verse 9 where it says, what is the wording there? Um, Unrighteous wealth in the ESV, my version. Uh, That same phrase is rendered other places in the Bible as worldly goods. Uh, And it's the same idea. It's the idea of using our worldly goods. This parable challenges us with the truth that our worldly goods, although temporary, can be used to effectuate that which is eternal. You're going to leave your stuff, or your stuff is going to leave you, but it can be used as a blessing and a help to others in Jesus' name. And therefore, your unrighteous wealth, your worldly goods, can be converted into a heavenly treasure laid up where moth and rust do not destroy, and beyond the reach of thieves and robbers like the unlikely protagonist in our parable for this morning. 
In the parable, this man's boss, a wealthy man, somehow becomes aware that his account manager has been feathering his own nest, embezzling money, and mismanaging his vast wealth. So he calls him in. He says, sir, I found out about your dirty dealings. I need you to bring me the books and all your records. I want the accounts payable. I want the accounts receivable. I want records of all of the business dealings going back five years, ten years. I want it all on my desk. Bring me everything you've got. We're going to do a very thorough audit. Now, the dishonest manager in the story does not argue. He does not say, you got it wrong, <laughs> or let me, let me explain. No, he knows he's danced, and now he has to pay the fiddler. The jig is up. He's guilty. He knows it. The charges that have been brought against him are absolutely 100% true, and he's not going to fight it. So he weighs his options. Maybe he could start again at the bottom of the ladder. As a common laborer, he could go back to digging ditches. But no, that's a young man's game. He's been made soft through easy living, and he's an older man than when he first started out in the rat race. He's worked his way up to a certain level of attainment, and he just knows physically he can't hang anymore. He's not going to go back to doing hard manual labor. So then he thinks, well, maybe, maybe I can beg. That would be, not be as hard as on my body. But then he instantly thinks, oh, but that would be way too hard relationally. To see everybody I know and the people I did business with seeing me hat in hand on the street corner, I cannot countenance the idea of doing that. He says, no, I can't work. I can't beg. He only has one more card to play. And he decides to play it. He, know, he knew he was fired, and he had nowhere to go. He cannot make things better with his boss, but he can't make them worse either. He's going to be canned no matter what he does. So who cares what he does? This is the reasoning. So he doubles down on his dishonesty. He decides to make friends with people who owed his boss money by cutting their bills dramatically, in some cases in half. Take the matter of this 100 measures of oil that he cuts down to 50%. That 50% cut and 100 measures of oil, one commentary I read, was more than two years' wages. This is not chump change. He's talking big money. And with a stroke of the pen... He's putting people back in the black, left and right, in a big way. Now, as I said earlier, these are a bunch of rascals, <laughs> absolute rascals, and they enter into a conspiracy to defraud this man. If somebody came to you and said, you owe my master $100,000, but listen, for no reason at all, sit down, let's make it fifty. dollars and write this sucker off. First question on my mind, why? <laughs> why are you doing this? The dishonest manager and those who formerly had been in debt up to their eyeballs enter into what Jesus is describing as a quid pro quo arrangement. They're co-conspirators. 
It's almost like if I said to you, what would you do for me if I gave you $50,000? What would you do for $100,000, $50,000? So he says, listen, I'm getting canned, but I can help you. You scratch my back, I'm going to scratch yours. They see that there is a small, very small window of opportunity by which they can gain some continuing benefit from this narrow window of remaining time in which the manager maintains control over the accounts. In other words, this dishonest manager decided to give what he could not keep to gain something that his soon-to-be former master would not be able to take away from him, his new friends. So he and his co-conspirators move quickly and decisively. There are no half measures. They are thieves, to be sure, but they are wholehearted in their thievery. Don't miss this point. It's very important. There's no undividedness in their heart. There's no doing this halfway. They are all in. William Barclay writes, The steward was willing to bend every effort to maintain his comfort. The debtors are willing to catch at any chance to cancel part of their debt. If Christians were as keen on their Christianity as these men were on their dubious business, it would be a vastly different world. Hugh Martin once wrote about Christians he observed in his church, If they took as much trouble with their Christianity as they do in trying to reduce their handicap at golf or growing their roses, they would be much better people. But again, we come to this question, if that's the main idea, it's no fool who gives what he can't keep to gain what he can't lose, sure, that's true, but why use this story? (laughs) Why do it in this way, Jesus? R.C. Sproul calls this device, which really, when you start to look for it, is everywhere in Jesus' teachings. He calls it the principle of how much more. That's how R.C. Sproul describes it. He gets that from a passage where Jesus is talking about an unjust judge. We'll come to that in just a second. But really, this is a common feature in Jesus' teaching, where he draws a good lesson from a bad example and then wraps it up by saying, if this is true for wicked people, how much more should it be true for people who are living for what's right and good, living for the kingdom, for righteousness? Last sermon I gave, last parable, was on the Good Samaritan. Now, I think that word is so boiled into our culture, Good Samaritan, that we don't often pause to think about what a Samaritan was, but a Samaritan was a heretic. A Samaritan was somebody in that culture, uh, like the Jews accepted all of God's revelation from Genesis to Malachi. The Samaritans only believed that the Pentateuch was true, and they threw out all the remainder of God's revelation up to that time. So they arrived at some strange conclusions. They also included some elements of worship that weren't true to what God had revealed in His Word. And so, sure, there is a racial element to the problem between Jews and Samaritans in first century Roman world that Jesus was talking to, but there was also a very real disagreement over truth. And the Samaritans were wrong. The Samaritans were on the wrong side of that theological argument. So when Jesus tells the story of the good Samaritan behaving in ways that are honorable and good, he is saying to people who are inheritors of the truth, 
How much more should this be true among us who are supposedly shaped by what is true, by God's word? This is true being acted out by somebody who has not embraced the truth. How much more should that look real and true among us who have the full revelation of God? That's the point in the Good Samaritan, or at least part of it. Or take the example from Luke 18. This is the one where R.C. Sproul gets his how much more from. In that parable, there's a judge who Jesus said neither feared God nor respected man. That's the description of this wicked judge. But when a widow pesters him continuously to hear her case, he finally relents just to get her off her back. And this kind of persistence pays off when pursuing a wicked judge. So Jesus says, how much more... Should you pray continuously to God who delights in hearing your prayers and in answering them? If this is true when you're chasing down a wicked judge, how much more should it be true? Or what about in Matthew 7 when Jesus says of human fathers, this is a great text for Father's Day because it calls your human fathers wicked. If you then who are evil, dads, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children... For example, he gives the example, if your child asks you for bread, you won't give him a rock. If he asks you for a fish, you don't hand him a snake. Then he says, if you who are evil know how to give your kids good gifts, well then, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? How much more? And we see a similar logic in our parable this morning, which is such a common feature in Jesus' teaching. In verse 8, it says, For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. This is very much a how much more principle. He looks at people living in the world with a wholehearted, undivided love for what they're doing. There is no half measures. They are not undivided. They are going at it 100% with every part of them. And Jesus says, they, this makes more sense than what the church is doing. Living for the truth in a fits and starts, half measure kind of a way. A sometimes thing. For the sons of this world are more shrewd, there's greater wisdom in the way that they are going about their dealings than the sons of light. In other words, what Jesus is saying is that what was true for this man in his wicked pursuits should be even more true for God's people in their pursuit of righteousness and kingdom objectives. Just like in this parable, we're faced with a very narrow window of opportunity during which our worldly goods can achieve eternal benefits for ourselves and they can be of some eternal benefit for others as well. I think the reason why Jesus uses this is to spur us on. Frankly, he wants us to feel <laughs> that we're not doing right, that, that, we, uh, that people who are pursuing wickedness do so with their whole self. Why are we pursuing what is right with a part of ourselves? Ephesians 5.16 says, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, 
making the best use of the time because the days are evil. In 2 Peter 3, 10 through 12, we're told this, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. I think, again, the main idea of this parable is this. For those of us who have been given eyes to see and believe the word of God, we have been told about a future event that is going to come to pass. The dishonest manager was told, you're going to be fired. And so he had a very short, narrow window of time in which he could do something about it. And we, you and me both, are living in the days of decision. Are you aware that these are the only time, these are the only days in all of eternity in which you have a choice to make? There is a day coming when Jesus returns in his glory and we all will enter into that day in light of the decisions we made. But beyond that, there will be no rival suitors. There will be no other thing on which to place your passions. There will be nothing to say no to that competes with Jesus for the lordship over your heart. These are the days of decision. These are the days when you have an enemy that can be fraternized with or rejected. These are the days when you can pursue righteousness in the presence of an alternative. But there is a day coming where all of us will enter into that day of judgment and wrath, reward for some, wrath for others, in light of the decisions we made during these days. But days of decision will come to an end. The dishonest manager knew what was coming and he moved quickly to make provision for it. I think it would be good if all people could see the issues as clearly and honestly as this dishonest manager did. I know I just said something weird, that he is honest, this dishonest manager. He's at least honest with himself. He's dishonest with his manager, with his, his boss, but he's honest with himself about the pickle he's in. I think many people don't do this. They just they feel an uncomfortable thought about their own mortality and what comes past that, and they start scrolling. They turn up the radio. They turn on the TV. They seek something out to distract them. They think somehow it will all come out in the wash. They basically shove it away from their consciousness. They shove it down out of sight, and they just keep living in a one foot in front of the other kind of way. But you cannot ignore this issue forever. All of us have to decide about Jesus and his significance, and at least give this dishonest manager credit in that he was honest with himself. He stated the issue clearly. He knew what was coming, and he resolved to do something about it. 
Hebrews 4.13 says, And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Now, all around us here in Aroostook County, in our families, our places of work, and so on, we see the tragedy of people who are just absolutely missing this. They don't know God, and therefore they do not yet understand the meaning of this life or hope beyond this life. And that's a tragedy. And by God's grace, in response to the prayers of His people, by the faithful evangelism efforts of you. Again, God's plan A for evangelism is His church, and there is no plan B. We can join Him in doing that, or we can fade to irrelevance as a church. And we do hope to see God bring many who are far off into a saving relationship with Him and join us here as worshipers. But do you know what else is a tragedy? I would even say a greater one that there are so many within the church who are also missing it. Although they don't live in a way that is overtly ungodly, they are guilty of living in a godless way. You all know the Great Commission to go and make disciples. You all know that Jesus has said, as the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. You all know that you've been given gifts and resources to be used for God's glory and service to others. You all know the command to love God with your entire self and to love your neighbor as yourself. You know that the fields are ripe for the harvest, but the laborers are few. You all know the command to pray. You know the command to be intimately involved in a church family. You know the command to help the widow and orphan in distress. You know that these are the right things to build your life around, but like the dishonest manager in our parable, some of us take what the master has entrusted to us as a steward, and we waste it. On the last day, that amazing day, when Jesus returns and we enter into the joy of our master, we will enjoy him in a way that we've never experienced before and which will transcend all the delights we ever knew in the midst of these days of decision. It will be unmingled with guilt or regret or any sinful longings. He's calling on the church to live by faith and not by sight, depending fully on Him and nothing else. We're presented by our God in these days with choices which will result on that last day in consequences. And on that last day, we will walk in the light of the decisions we made in life, some to eternal life and others to heavenly reward. I'm sorry, to eternal life and heavenly reward and others to judgment and wrath. Those who know Jesus as Savior will witness the splendor of the earth made new. I uh, once developed 54 questions. And I memorized them because I needed an emergency personality. If you, don't, if you don't know what that means, I'm very awkward socially. And occasionally over the course of my life, I've found myself in like long car rides with somebody I only kind of knew. And I can't sustain a long conversation like that because I'm weird and I just can't do it. So I developed 54 questions to ask. It's an instant personality. You don't need to talk if you can get them talking. That's what I learned. 
One of the questions I like, you can ask me the rest of the 53 other questions, but one of the questions I like to ask is if you could witness anything from the Old Testament, what would it be? And there's some interesting answers to that, especially from people who know their Bibles. Um, But for me, my answer to that question, what would I witness from the Old Testament if I could see anything? Wouldn't you like to see the garden in its perfection before the fall? What did a perfect world look like? I wonder. You're going to see that if you've put your trust in Jesus for salvation. The Bible says he's going to make the earth new. We're going to see the garden in its perfection. I can't wait. That's an exciting thing to think about. We'll walk the streets of the new Jerusalem and see the place that Jesus has prepared for us. We'll walk through woods without mosquitoes somehow <laughs> or, or with mosquitoes that we enjoy. I don't know what that will like. <laughs> we will experience all the delights of heaven, and chief among those delights will be the presence of God. It's going to be fantastic. As Psalm 1611 says, you make known to me the path of life, and in your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Two things I've never experienced, fullness of joy. I've experienced joy, but not in its fullness. And I've experienced pleasures, but not the sort that are forevermore, fleeting, That's what I've tasted of. But on that last day, when we step into eternity, we'll see the glory and majesty, the beauty and the awesome power of God. We'll see the breadth and length and height and depth of God's grace like an ocean that was poured out for us. We'll see the immensity of the debt which Jesus paid on the cross. We'll see the endless splendor of the world to come as well as the horrors of the judgment that we escaped. And on that day, as the things of this world grow strangely dim, I wonder who among us will think, I wish I'd spent more time worrying. (laughs) I wish I'd spent more time laying up treasures on earth, indulging the flesh. I wish I'd spent more time improving my outward appearance to the neglect of the inner person. You will not wish on that day that you had talked less about Jesus, that you had stayed home from church, that you'd worshipped less, loved less, or gave less. You will not wish that you had been more concerned with the opinions of people. We will wish in that moment that we had explored the possibilities of faith more that we had asked God for more, and also that we had asked more of God. You will wish that you had pursued greater intimacy and obedience and devotion to the teachings of Scripture. We will wish that we had asked to be more content, that we'd asked for more boldness. We'll wish that we had better understood how our Creator had crafted us to worship Him through service. We'll wish that we had used our gifts more to glorify God and to be a blessing and a help to others. We'll wish that we had prayed much, much more for the lost and for the work of missionaries overseas. 
On that day, when our eyes are opened and we see things more clearly, we will all certainly wish that we had made our lives count more for the Lord during these days. And Jesus speaks this parable into our lives this morning to challenge us about what are we using our days for. He points to this bad man, (laughs) and he says he's a thief, but he's going about it wholeheartedly. He is doing it with every part of who he is. He's doing it quickly. There's no delaying. He realized that the days are short. He only has a very small amount of time to get this done. You don't know how many days you have on the earth. When I used to, I think I've told this story to some of you before, I used to, when I lived at Camp Maranatha, I used to have young people would come from all over the world. Truly, we had Germans there, people from Japan, and we'd have this group of young people who lived on the grounds of a 24-hour ministry team. And they would do everything at the camp, from dishes to maintenance work out around the grounds. And at night, it was my job to go up to the boys' staff house and check them in for curfew. And every night, I'd go up there, and I'd have a devotion prepared, and we'd read God's Word together, and then um, turn off the lights and tell them to go to sleep and not sneak out. Then I'd leave, and I don't know what happened after that. (laughs) But one night, I went up there, and my devotion for the night had to do with Ecclesiastes 12.1, in which it says, remember now your creator in the days of your youth. And my purpose in sharing that verse with them was just to encourage them, to say, guys, look, this is what you're doing. You're remembering your creator now in the days of your youth. You're giving up a summer during your teenage years to serve God here at Camp Maranatha. Isn't that great? I shared that verse, and then in the darkness, I asked the guys why they, why, why they thought I would want to share that verse with them. And one of the young men, his name was Lucas Dunn, he said that the reason why it was important to remember now your God in the days of your youth is because you're not guaranteed anything else. I thought, wow, that is a better answer than the one I was going to bring. Uh, A year or two later, I was driving down off the mountain to go do some grocery shopping, and my my phone rang. It was my wife, Sarah. She was crying, and she told me that Lucas had died in a freak mountain climbing accident. Uh, He was an incredible mountain climber. He was one of the youngest people to ever climb as an El Capitan in Yosemite without uh, ropes. He just did a free climb. It's pretty amazing, Uh, but the way he died was pretty mundane. It was just a simple accident that couldn't have been foreseen. But the first thing I thought was of Lucas saying, you're not guaranteed anything else. Guys, you have a very narrow window of time. None of us knows how narrow. But by the way God measures time, all of us have a very small span of days under the sun. Jim Elliott said, the person is not a fool who gives what he can't keep to gain what he can't lose. What are you spending your days on? What am I spending my money on? How am I spending my days? 
Is it being done in a way that will reap dividends 10,000 years from now in glory? Or will it die with me? This dishonest manager, this very bad example, is put in front of us to teach us a very good lesson. You can't keep any of this stuff, but you can use it, you can convert it into a treasure laid up in heaven through good works. And you can use it to reach other people for Jesus. Have you ever thought that one of the reasons why God has given you a car is so that you can give people rides? One of the reasons God has given me a home is so that I can open it to others in friendship and hospitality. One of the reasons God gives us fruit from our labor is so that we can fund the work of the kingdom and meet other people's needs. Or we can be like the dishonest manager who's an absolute rascal, (laughs) who takes what's been entrusted to him and spends it on himself. We're going to stop right there this morning. I, I think there's more we could draw out of this. Jesus goes on here to talk about money. And uh, maybe another Sunday we'll come back to that thought, but I just think we're going to stop right there for this morning. This is the main idea. This is the main thing that Jesus would confront us with through the telling of this parable. To what extent are we spending our days and our resources and our time laying up treasures for heaven, or are we taking what's been entrusted to us as a manager and just feathering our nest during this very short time? These are days of decisions. You have control over what God has put under your management. How will we use it? That's the story. Let's pray. Uh, Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this parable. It is a challenging one for us to think about God, but I am personally provoked. And I must confess before you, Lord, that I am less wholehearted in my pursuits than this thief. God, at least what he did, he did in an all-in, undivided, sold-out kind of way. He was bold. He was decisive. He moved quickly. He did what he had to do to provide for a coming day that he knew surely was going to come to pass. And God, all of us who have given eyes to see and believe your word have been made aware that there is a coming day and that the way we spend these days matters. And so, God, I pray that you would uh, lay it on our hearts not to waste the days that you've given us. Father, help us to make the best use of our time, of our resources, of our conversations, of our relationships. God, help us to live in a way that will make sense 10,000 years from now in glory. Because, Father, when we come to the end... We won't wish that we'd spent more time doing many of the things that fill our days right now. Help us to live today for that which will matter on that day. In Jesus' name, amen.